good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor of Covenant Hope Church. In the famous novel, Moby Dick, Captain Ahab is the leader on a whaling boat, and he is obsessed with killing the great white whale named Moby Dick. On a previous voyage, as he chased this whale, the whale had attacked his boat and bitten off his leg at the knee. And so Captain Ahab had a false leg from his knee down on one side. And Captain Ahab wants revenge on Moby Dick. At the end of the story, there's a terrifying encounter between Captain Ahab and the whale that he sought for so long and with so much passion. After seeing Moby Dick kill many of his men, Ahab finally manages to harpoon the whale, but the rope that's tied to the harpoon gets tangled around him and he's pulled into the sea and to his watery grave by the beast that he had obsessed over for so long. Often in people's lives, they pursue with great passion and energy what they think will make them happy, only to find that when they obtain it, it actually leads to their destruction. Never is that more true than in the pursuit of money and riches. King Solomon, the one who speaks to us through the book of Ecclesiastes, knew what it was like to have untold riches, but rather than show us how to get rich quick, how to make our millions, he has words of warning for us. And another far more worthy pursuit. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you turn to the very middle of your Bible, if you have a Bible that's Old and New Testament, you'll probably get to the Psalms. If you take a right at the Psalms, you'll get to Proverbs and then eventually to Ecclesiastes. We're, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're starting at verse 8 this afternoon. And we're going to chapter 6, verse 12. 5, 8 to 6, 12. Follow along with me as I read it. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? 
Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and in anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray together. Lord, you're sovereign, and you ordain and determine our days and our nights and our years and our decades, even down to the very last moments that we'll take breath. We need wisdom from you for how to live our lives in light of your sovereignty and your goodness and the fact that we live in a sin-soaked world of pain and disappointment and injustice. Oh, Lord, guide us by your word, we pray. In keeping with your character and the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, the big idea from this passage this afternoon is this. Riches will fail but God gives joy in life. Riches will fail, but God gives joy in life. And the sermon has two points, and it's contained in that big idea. Riches will fail you, and then God gives joy in life. So how do we live in God's world, a world stained by sin? Well, that's the question that all of wisdom literature answers for us in the Bible, and that's the question that the main character of Ecclesiastes is answering for us as well. The author of Ecclesiastes is telling us King Solomon's wisdom. That's what he's quoting to us. 
Now, when we look at a passage in Scripture, the literary structure of a biblical passage, you know, how it's put together, the argument that's made, or the parallelisms that are there in the passage, they guide us to the main point of the passage. So we always want to be looking for the structure. Ecclesiastes, though, is notoriously difficult to understand when it comes to structure. I don't know if you listened carefully as I was reading through that passage, you probably thought to yourself, where in the world is the author going? He's all over the place. Where is the structure? But this passage, if you look at it long enough and study it closely enough, it seems to have been written with a structure that emphasizes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. I wonder if you heard those as I was reading through there. Did your ears perk up as I read And you started hearing some good news, some things that were good amidst all the other bad things that the author was talking about. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 tell us good news about what God offers us in daily joy. But on either side of those words in 18 through 20, so either above and below, are strong warnings about the dangers of pursuing riches and wealth. And so what we have in this passage is like a sandwich, if you think of it like a sandwich, okay? We have warnings on the top, chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. Then we have hope in the middle, that's verses 18 through 20. And then we have warnings again below it, chapter 6, 1 through 12. And so these warnings on the top and on the bottom, they draw our attention to those shorter verses in between that offer hope right? So it's, it's like a big painting that is just one big, solid, bold color, except for a bright white stripe down the middle of it. Imagine that. And if you look at that painting, where is your attention going to be drawn to? What's going to be drawn to the white stripe in the middle? That's what the structure of this passage actually does if we look at it carefully. Our attention is drawn to verses 18 through 20. But first, we have to consider the warnings. And so the first point this afternoon is King Solomon wants to teach us that riches will fail you. Riches will fail you. And we will see that in at least three different ways. The first way that riches fail us is described in chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, and then toward the end of our passage in chapter 6, 7 uh, 7 through 12. They they teach that riches fail to satisfy. They fail to satisfy. Look with me at verses 8 through 9, 8 and 9 in chapter 5. They point out the oppression of the poor. They talk about a violation of justice and righteousness. And the preacher here, the king, King Solomon, tells us to not be amazed at oppression. And he tells us why it happens. Why does it happen? Because there's greed at the top. He says, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over then. And then we get to verse 9, which is, if you look, maybe you probably have a footnote at the bottom of your Bible that says, the Hebrew is difficult to translate. (laughs) Well, when you see that in your Bible, oftentimes it's helpful to go look at other translations as well and uh, compare with them other literal translations, I might add. I think that some other translations make more sense of it 
than the ESV by translating them this way, for example, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now that fits better with the idea of oppression and injustice. So King Solomon is describing how greedy people at the top of the political structures end up gaining the most riches while the poor continue to suffer. How many of us can think of people in the governments of the countries where we come from who profit unfairly because of their governmental position? And King Solomon has said in the first chapter, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We expect that when we open up the international news to read about politicians who have taken money somehow, money that wasn't theirs. And in this we see that riches fail to satisfy. Why? Because the system is oftentimes rigged. It's built to benefit those on the top of the power structure. Some of you may be familiar with the term trickle-down economics. Trickle-down economics is the idea that if we tax wealthy people less, then they'll invest their money in businesses which will hire people, lower-wage people, and they'll benefit from it. And sometimes that's true to some extent. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the money doesn't trickle down. Sometimes it continues to trickle up to the wealthy. So money in these kinds of situations is always flowing upward and likely away from you and I. So money doesn't satisfy in that situation. And then Solomon lists three Proverbs demonstrating that riches won't ultimately satisfy. And the first is the most clear, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Of course, there, there's that word again, vanity. We've seen it frequently in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? It's a mist, it's a vapor, something you, you can't quite catch. It's like chasing after wind and trying to catch it. Or it's a frustrating mystery. That's what vanity is to the author of Ecclesiastes. And then verse 11 describes how someone who has money oftentimes attracts to himself or herself people who, are, who will serve him and ultimately want his money and get his money. So that man's benefit ends up just being able to maybe see a higher bank balance on his bank statement. He doesn't actually get to enjoy the wealth that he has. In fact, he's, he ends up doling it out to all those people around him. Now think about all the celebrities that you see. You know, maybe you see news clips of them, and they have these huge entourages, these huge groups of people with them, sometimes hundreds, actually. I mean, what are all those people doing? Well, the person who is the celebrity is the one who's wealthy. And all those people are getting a piece of the pie. That's what this situation describes. And then verse 12 contrasts the, tinted, the contented sleep of the poor laborer with the upset stomach that the wealthy man has who has rich food to eat for himself. And it keeps him awake at night. The rich man ends up tossing and turning because he's bought rich, fatty meals that won't let him sleep. He eats too heavily. 
Whereas the poor man has sweet sleep, one of the greatest gifts from God, sleep. And then if we jump to the end of our passage, look down with me in chapter 6, verses 7 through 12, we see the other place where our author is arguing that riches fail to satisfy a person. There we see again that appetites can't be completely satisfied. Verse 7, he says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Or in verse 9, he says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. You see, if we set our heart on riches, if we set our hopes on money, then we will never, ever have enough. Sure, you might get that immediate rush of excitement and contentment when your bank account balloons, when you've gotten that raise or that windfall comes in, but it's going to come back again, that hunger for more, that emptiness, that sense that it's, well, it's just not quite enough. You need a little more. But King Solomon wants to remind us that it's vanity. It, it's like chasing after wind. Putting your hopes on money is like trying to catch the wind. One major corporation had moved their manufacturing facilities to a poor Central, Mer Central American country where the people there were used to having very little in the way of possessions and money. And so those people of that village who began to work in that factory began to be paid more than they had ever been paid in their lives. But the problem was that when they were paid at the end of each week in cash, the workers had more money than they had ever had before. And so after a period of time, they would just stop coming to work because they had enough. They had more than they had ever had before. Why go back and work? I want to enjoy what I got last week, they would think to themselves. Oh, well, that's not how you run a manufacturing plant. You can't have people not showing up. And so to fix the problem, the corporation began to hand out thick catalogs from a major department store which pictured thousands and thousands of things, things that they could buy maybe. Dishwashers, clothes, tools, toys. Well, pretty soon people started showing up back at work. That's right. Seeing pictures of all those things they could possibly own ignited in them an ever-growing desire for more. They needed more. That weekly cash stack that they got was not enough anymore. The company had successfully taught them to never be satisfied with what they had. Riches fail to satisfy us because our hearts are always hungry for more. Riches will fail us as well because riches will be lost. That's what these verses teach us as well. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 17 teach us this. Riches will be lost. Those verses describe a situation where a rich man finds himself with some money Look with me at verses 13 through 17 there in 5. King Solomon identifies what he twice calls in these verses a grievous evil. 
And the situation is this. The man has riches, and he's obviously depending on those riches in his life for satisfaction and joy. But look at verse 14. And those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So some kind of bad investment has robbed this man of his money, and then he has nothing to offer to his son as an inheritance. And verse 17 as well describes what the rest of his life turned out to be. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, or that means frustration and sickness and anger. So riches can be easily lost. And if your hopes are pinned on them, then you're left with no hope when they're taken from you. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller tells about how some business leaders responded to losing massive amounts of money almost overnight when the 2008 financial crisis hit. The acting chief financial officer of the U.S. Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of a real estate auction company shot himself in the head as he sat in his red Jaguar sports car. A French money manager responsible for investing the wealth of many of Europe's royal families slit his wrists and died in his New York office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in his apartment in London, which was costing him over 2,000 dirhams per night to rent. If money is what you're living for, when you suddenly lose all of it, then life is not worth living. Plus, you die at the end. Look with me. That's the other point that King Solomon wants to make for us. He guarantees that your wealth will be lost eventually. It's not just that it's easy to be lost. It will be lost because everyone is separated from their wealth no matter how much or how little they have when they die. Look at verses 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. There's a familiar saying, you can't take it with you. You know that saying? If you don't know it, what it means is you can't take your possessions with you when you die. They don't go with you. We all entered the world naked, every single one of us. And that's how we will exit the world as well. Whether you're Bill Gates or whether you're a Bedouin tribesman, whether you're worth billions or whether you just have a few fills in your pocket, death strips us of our possessions. And despite the fact Satan has blinded men's minds to this truth and led them to believe that they could, could, in fact, take some of their wealth into the next life. I mean, if we look back in ancient times, if you look at the tombs of royalty all over the world, their tombs are filled with stuff. That's what their followers, that's what their subjects left for them in their tombs. I mean, the, think of the Egyptian pyramids, for example. That's, those were tombs. And inside those tombs were great wealth, gold, silver, jewels. They were put there because their followers thought that they could use those things in the next life. 
But they've all passed on into death, and they will stand before God naked. Meanwhile, we get to look at their stuff in museums. And that's true for you and I as well. Naked we came into the world and naked we'll go. Riches can and will be lost. But another situation that those who seek riches can find themselves in is described in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And that teaches us another way that riches will fail us. And this is riches can't buy joy. Riches cannot buy joy. Look with me at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 6. In verses 1 and 2, King Solomon identifies another evil. Again, he calls it a grievous evil. And then he describes it in verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. He goes on in verse 3 then to describe this man's wealth in exaggerated terms. He says... even if he fathers a, a hundred children, which in, back in those times, children would have represented wealth and prosperity. In verse 6, he exaggerates the length of this man's life. He says, even if he should live thousand years twice over. But he makes it clear in verse 2, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. Or verse 3, his soul isn't satisfied with life's good things. Or verse 6, yet he enjoys no good. Money and wealth have not purchased joy for this man. He had it all. He's rich in family. He's rich in possessions. He can purchase anything he wants. He can pull up souk.com and buy it all. But he can't buy joy. He will end his life having owned all that wealth, and he'll end up in the same place that a stillborn child ends up. And so the stillborn child is better off, says King Solomon. The stillborn child hasn't had to live a life of thinking that he had everything when he actually lacked what mattered most, joy. Joy. Joy that's given by God who is the source of joy. Riches will fail you in all of these three ways and more. It fails to satisfy. It will be lost one day. And you can't buy joy with it. And what good is life without joy? What good is life? Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you in love with money? Do you not have as much as you'd like and you think just a little more and you'll find satisfaction? Or maybe have you lost money only to discover that your heart was hoping in it rather than in God? You were crushed. You were blown away. You were devastated, not just disappointed. You wondered if life was worth living. Or do you have enough, but you find that you're discontent? You're expecting from wealth to deliver on a promise that it can't keep. 
Now, the difficult thing about answering this question about whether or not we love money is that it's quite possible for us to deceive ourselves. <laughs> we can fool ourselves. We're, we're good at it, most of us. But what if you prayed regularly that God would reveal your sin to you, that you would be open to hearing from God and pointing out sin in your heart, like maybe love for money. Otherwise, you might not be open to hearing it from Him. And what if you asked Christian friends who knew you, what do you notice about my attitudes about money? What do you see in my life? And you gave them permission to tell you the truth about what they noticed. You know, that's one way that we can watch over one another's lives here in a covenant community in the local church. We can speak truth to one another. We can have that kind of courage to ask one another to look at our lives. And why can we ask about things that might potentially be embarrassing to us? Because we know that we're sinners and we know that Jesus loves us anyway. That should give us courage to find out these things about ourselves. We're safe with Him. You and I know we have sin in our lives that we haven't spotted. It's unseen to us. We have these blind spots to us. But Jesus knows our attitudes towards money. He knows if we're putting our hopes in riches and He loves us. He loves us. That can give us the courage to ask those questions of one another, to ask those questions of ourselves, to invite God to expose our sin, that we might be more holy and more pleasing to Him and ultimately more satisfied in Him and not in the things of this world. Here are some questions to ask yourself to help diagnose whether your heart is hoping in money. Do you enjoy giving money away? Do you take joy in that? Do you rejoice in giving to the ministry of the church? Do you find yourself thinking mostly about how you can get more money? Or... Do you also think often and even more so about how to serve the people around you? How you can do them spiritual good, maybe with a thoughtful phone call or setting up a meeting to see how they're doing, to read the scripture with them, to be a friend. What's on your mind more between the two of those? A third thing is, do you spend time regularly thanking God for what you already have? Regularly. Do you regularly praise God for His faithfulness to you in times of plenty and in times of need? Maybe a fourth question you could ask is, do you rejoice when other people around you experience material gain and not you? Do you rejoice for them? Or do you think to yourself primarily, why can't it be me? Let me be clear. 
King Solomon and the rest of the Bible are not teaching that wealth and riches are bad. That's not what this is teaching. He's simply saying that riches are a bad God to be serving. That's what he's saying to us. You know, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And we might add things like debt, loss. Don't lay up money where it's a bad investment or it could be stolen or maybe where there'll be a stock market crash. (laughs) But Jesus went on to say, but lay up treasures in heaven. And Martin Luther said about this, what sort of God is it that is not even capable of defending itself against moths and rust? What kind of a God is that? He's saying, as a God, riches are weak and defenseless. They will fail you. They will fail you. So we've explored King Solomon's warnings and the bad news about the pursuit of riches. What about the good news that's sandwiched in between? We should talk about that. What about verses 18 through 20 in chapter 5? They teach us that God gives joy in life. That's the second point this afternoon. God gives joy in life. Let's refresh our memory about what King Solomon said in these three verses, just three verses. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So the king has seen grievous evils and now he shows us what he's seen to be good and fitting, he says. I want to point out to you three keys to being able to receive and find joy, joy that God gives in life. And the first is this, recognize the giver. Recognize the giver, and the giver is God. Did you notice that God is mentioned four times in these three verses? Four times. God is central to what is good and fitting and to finding enjoyment in all the toil, as he says in verse 18. So God not only gives wealth and possessions, which he tells us here, whether you have few possessions or much wealth, but he also is the one who gives the power to enjoy them. That's what he says in verse 19. James 1.17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. One commentator said it this way, As not a drop of rain falls to the ground unless God so wills it, so not an ounce of joy flows through our hearts unless the Lord gives it. That's right. You cannot experience joy unless God enables you to. But it's not enough to just recognize God in general. God has revealed Himself completely and fully to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. King Solomon knew God as the covenant-keeping God, the God who had made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, and with his father David. We know this God through the Lord Jesus Christ as well. 
And so to recognize Christ is to recognize God. However you treat Christ is however you're treating God. So if King Solomon says that God gives the power to enjoy life, we know that Christ is the one who gives the power to enjoy life. Blaise Pascal, the famous Christian mathematician, said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Only the Lord Jesus Christ gives Himself to fill that vacuum in your heart. Money can't fill it. Riches can't fill it. Wealth and possessions can't fill it. Only Jesus can fill it. You know, if you're not a Christian, you're welcome here at our church every week when we gather and at many other gatherings that we have. Maybe you feel satisfied in your life. You know, that may be the case for you. You know, oftentimes preachers will say, I know you're feeling dissatisfied in your life. Well, I have something better for you. But you know what? You, you, if you're not a Christian. You may think to yourself, you know, I'm doing okay, Brian. I'm enjoying my life. That may be the case. But what if... What if those things were taken away from you that make you satisfied? You see, riches in this case, they can't satisfy. But Christ said in John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jesus satisfies like no other and he satisfies forever. Or what about riches? Riches, of course, we said could be lost. But about Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus can't be separated from you if you're trusting in Him. Never. Riches can't buy joy either. But Christ said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Christ gives abundant life, satisfying life, ever overflowing life. I wonder, you may feel satisfied in your life. But have you recognized that Jesus Christ is the giver of all good things? Whatever it is in your life that you're satisfied with, Jesus had something to do with it. It might be something that's twisted and distorted. It might be some sin. But Satan is not very original. All he does with sin is he takes God's good things and he twists and distorts them. (laughs) Have you turned to him in faith? this Christ, this Jesus. Your biggest problem isn't actually a lack of joy in your life, if that is the case for you. We all have seasons of loss and pain and sadness. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes taught us that, didn't it? There's a time for birth, a time for death, a time for killing, a time for healing, and it went on and on and on. Remember those times? (laughs) But your biggest problem is that you're alienated from God. Your sin has put you at odds with God. 
it's turned you into an enemy of God. No matter what you think, you might think you're friends with God, but you're not if you've not trusted in Christ. He's entirely holy and you're not entirely holy. And that's enough to make us enemies of God. But God sent Christ into the world to die on the cross and to be raised a new life so that you and I can go from being enemies to adopted sons and daughters in His family. It's amazing. Repenting and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin is the first step in recognizing Jesus as the giver of all good things. An even greater gift than daily joy is that He gives us eternal life, eternal joy. Have you trusted in Him? What's stopping you? Another key to receiving the joy that God gives us is to accept your situation. To accept your situation. In verse 18, King Solomon refers to the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. In verse 19, he tells us that man needs to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. God is the one, of course, who has caused us to be born into whatever situation, whatever circumstances that each of us were born into. I was born into a family in America. I had no control over that. Some of you were born into families in the Philippines. Others of you were born into the country of Nigeria, still others into India, some in Brazil, some in China, some in England, and still others after that. God has determined the times and places and the circumstances of our lives. And part of living a joy-filled life is to accept that. It's, it's to not be angry with God or to fight against God's sovereignty in our lives, His direction and His control. It's to accept it. And that, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard to improve your life situation. I don't think that's what the author or the King Solomon is saying to us in Ecclesiastes. It doesn't mean that if you're in a situation of persecution or oppression that you shouldn't seek to change your situation if you can. But accepting that God is sovereign in our lives is an important step to receiving the joy that only God can give us. Our reading earlier in the service was from Philippians 4, and in that passage, Paul is telling the Philippian church that he's learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul's accepted his situations in every situation that he encountered. He knows God's sovereign. He trusts God. And believe me, Paul had some bad situations. He was stoned. He was beaten up. He was imprisoned. And he had some good situations too that he experienced. Sweet times with the people of God. He accepted them all. He learned to be content in them. Psalm 16, 5 and 6 says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. Other translations say my lot. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The psalmist, you see, he's speaking of these boundary lines of his inheritance. He's using the imagery of boundary lines on a, a plot of inherited land to describe accepting what's been given to him, even thankfulness for his situation in life. So are you able to say with Paul, I have learned to be content 
in any and every situation? You know, that's what Paul was talking about when he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. (laughs) Do you thank God for his goodness to you in life at all times? Is God your portion? Is he enough for you? Accepting our situation in life then paves the way for us to do what the king suggests in verse 20, which I think is really the focal point of the whole passage structurally. Verse 20. First in 18, he says, eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil. Verse 19, God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to rejoice in his toil. And so this third way of embracing the joy that God gives is to treasure daily joys, simple joys. Especially in verse 20, he says, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Part of being able to receive the joy that God gives us to pursue the daily joys that God gives us in our work, in our relationships. I mean, yes, in some ways, peripherally and maybe tangentially, this passage is about um, contentment in God, but really the passage is teaching us to be content with our work content with the little things in life. Verse 20 is telling us that the man who recognizes Christ as the giver and accepts his situation in life is is then freed up to have his heart filled with daily joy that only God gives. When he says he will not much remember the days of his life, I think he's saying that he won't be filled with worry and craving and discontent. You know, Paul echoed the wisdom of King Solomon when he wrote his first letter to that young pastor named Timothy. He said so many things just like King Solomon. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Hmm? Does that sound like King Solomon? But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then he goes on a few verses later to say, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. (laughs) God provides us with everything to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy what He's given us. You know, I know that many of you have jobs that maybe you don't enjoy. Maybe you, you dream of a different job. You dream of doing, maybe you just dream of a job. (laughs) You'd like to be doing something different. I want to challenge you to pray for joy in your work. Pray for God to enable you, (laughs) which we see from this passage is only possible through God, to enable you to take joy in it, the simple things. Maybe a project that gets finished. Maybe a colleague who's friendly to you one day. 
Pray for God to give you joy. Look for it in the everyday simple things. And don't turn God's good gifts into God's in your life. Jesus Christ came into the world to dethrone all the fake gods like money and riches which ultimately enslave people. He warned about the deceitfulness of riches time after time, whether it was in the parable of the sower where the riches and wealth choked out the growth of fruit from the seed that had sprung up into a plant, or whether it was in the parable of the rich man who hoarded his wealth in bigger and bigger barns only to have his soul demanded of him that very night, Jesus said that he had laid up treasure for himself and he wasn't rich towards God. Or whether it was where Jesus taught that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You'll love one and hate the other. And he promised that God would be our provider, that we should seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and that God would provide all the rest that we needed. Riches will fail you. Just like King Ahab's pursuit of the whale Moby Dick led to his death. But God gives joy, and He gives it to us in His Son, King Jesus. Don't, don't follow the example of Captain Ahab. Follow the example of King Jesus. Pursuing and finding Christ frees us to enjoy the good gifts that He gives us in life until He calls us home where we will walk on streets of gold and we will lack nothing and we will own with Him everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are good and every good thing comes from You. Lord, we pray that You would give us the power to enjoy the things that you've given us in life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given us eternal life that we even begin to experience now in this life. But we put our ultimate hopes in what's to come. Oh, Lord, give us patience, give us joy, give us faith in this life. In Christ's name, amen.